have the Ascot basket. Okay. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the LGBT and Friends meeting in OA. My name is Mary. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi. 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 Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, God grant me the serenity, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I'm going to read something from our meeting locally. This meeting is a safe and welcoming space for gay, lesbian, bisexual, overeaters, anorexics, and bulimics to share their experience, strength, and hope. Strength and hope. Sorry, it's not working very well. According to the third tradition, we welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. But please be respectful for those of us who have sought out this meeting for its specific focus. Whatever your problem with food, you are welcome at this meeting. Are there any compulsive overeaters here besides myself? Oh, good, there's a couple. Okay, before we get started, we ask that all cell phones and other electronic equipment be turned off. The session is being taped. Anyone wishing to share will be required to sign the speaker release form before sharing. Have people signed the uh, release form prior? Because I have another one if you haven't. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. Opinions expressed here today are those of the individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. An Ask It basket will be circulated for the question and answer portion of the session. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tapes table to order a copy of this session or any other session. They are available on CD or as electronic download. The format of this session is as follows. Three speakers will share for 20 minutes each, followed by 10 minutes of questions and answers, finishing up with 10 minutes of open pitches. The topic for the session is LGBT and OA. Our first speaker is Liz. <laughs> Hi, my name is Liz. I'm a compulsive overeater. <sighs> Breathe. I'm just going to read you my story. I've been a compulsive overeater for most of my 48 years. I think it started when my parents got divorced when I was four or five. I remember hearing them fight and crying outside their bedroom door. I came from parents who were also addicts. My mom is a compulsive overeater and my father was a dry drunk and a smoker. He smoked to maintain his weight, and it eventually killed him with cancer. As being um, brought up in the Jewish culture, food was very much the fo in the forefront. There are plenty of jokes about Jewish mothers and grandmothers feeding and overfeeding children and equating food with love and guilt. I felt lonely and unloved and emotionally detached from my family and found food to fill the void. Although I was raised in a religion to some degree, I was never taught faith or connected with it. My parents did not have a faith to share with me. In fact, the strongest, strongest memories I have about religious training were in Hebrew school 
hitting the gift shop before class to buy chocolate bars to eat during the class. So I've mentioned a childhood food behavior. Let me share a few more. The most distinct, be- uh, the most distinct memories I have of my childhood are food-related or less-than-happy memories. I tried to block out my childhood as much, much as possible to separate myself from the pain. My mother worked for a food company when I was in elementary or junior high school. Each Christmas, a large package of candy would come from someone at one of the divisions of the company. The large box was hidden under her bed. I would come home from school and be on my own since my mom was working and my father came around about once a week to see us. So I'd get that box out every afternoon and stuff myself until finally the only flavor left in the box was something I didn't like. And eventually I ate that too. When I went trick-or-treating one year, I remember making a robot costume, a cardboard box covered with tinfoil, with a shoebox attached in the front to hold all the candy I got. I would trade away what I didn't like and keep the rest. I grew up on the East Coast, so it was cold in the winter, and I hid that shoebox under the snow in my backyard to keep all the candy to myself. Believe me, it didn't last long, but I ate it in private as I always did. I remember selling candy for a YMCA youth group at school. Guess who sold the most candy? At the Christmas holidays, I, holidays, I would spend time at my best friend's house. They were really my surrogate family. They were Catholic and very involved with their church. Their religion felt like a community, something I desired. For Christmas Eve, they would bake all kinds of holiday treats, and you bet I was there. Just like usual, I would eat all the sweets I could get my hands on until there was only the dreaded fruitcake left. And as expected, I would eventually eat that too. I always felt ashamed, sneaky, and guilty to get the food I wanted and needed. Food was there for me when it felt like the love of my family was not. My mother hid treats in our pantry, which I would find, eat, and feel bad about. As an adult, I discovered that she was hiding it for herself when I always thought she was hiding it from me. What a revelation. She is and was a compulsive overeater, so I must have modeled myself after her in some way. We also shared low self-esteem. She escaped her family life by marrying my father at the age of 17. But my father was completely vain and self-absorbed. He put his needs ahead of everyone else in his family. He learned to objectify and basically hate women from his mother who smothered and overprotected him and his father who was a player. When my parents divorced, I was a pawn between them, sending messages back and forth when I saw my father on Sundays. It was hard as a child to stand up for myself and say, stop, I won't be your messenger anymore. My father stopped contributing financially in child support for, for me and my, brother, my two brothers. He was never able to keep a job or make much money after the divorce. And I think he lost his job due to drinking. Having visits with my father were painful. He would complain about everyone, especially criticizing my mother. It hurt my heart to hear that. He would play football with my two brothers, leaving me to sit on the grass and watch their interaction. I didn't experience any of the encouragement and connection that my brothers had from him. He couldn't relate to me. As a chubby kid, he could criticize my food choices, but he never took action to help me or support me. When I would cry to him about being teased for being fat at school, he would tell me that I didn't need any friends. Not very comforting to tell a kid that they didn't need any friends. But as an only child who was filled with fear, that must have been his experience. What I didn't know 
as a young child was why my parents got divorced. My mother didn't criticize my father like he criticized her. Early in my adolescence, I wanted to know more, so I asked her. She told me that he wanted to be with another woman. He whined and complained about his desire to be with her. Finally, my mom caved in and he left. When he wanted to return, she said no and said it was just like having three children now instead of four. My father demanded complete attention from her. She said when we were little, she had to feed us dinner and put us to bed before I came home from work because he wanted her all to himself. So she would eat dinner again with him. When I learned how he treated her, I began to hate my father. I asked her why she never told us anything or said anything negative about him, and she said she didn't want us to hate him. She raised us alone, saved our home. At the time when a woman couldn't own a home, she had to appear in front of the town council to keep it. Money was tight, and she gave piano lessons on top of working a full-time job to keep us going. I felt profoundly affected by my father's lack of support or love or on every level and amazed by my father my mother's abilities to keep it together i still do not know all of the things she had to do but i sense there's a lot more into the story that i will learn someday i dreaded seeing my father's car in the street in front of our house after that as soon as i was able i severed my relationship with him later on i learned that he was really attracted to men but was never able to act on it my mother said they had crushes on the same movie stars he kept his sexuality hidden, but seemed very effeminate to me growing up. My mom told me when I came out to her at 24 that she had been in a relationship with a woman before. Geez, I wish she told me that sooner. I dreaded and agonized over sharing that information with her. It would have been a relief. But to backtrack, let me share a story about understanding my sexuality. Before I was an adolescent, maybe around the age of 9 or 10, my mother gave me a book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. If you aren't familiar with it, <laughs> it's a book about the, fe the female body, reproduction, etc. It was the 70s, and the 60s feminism was very influential. There was a chapter on lesbianism. Wow. I remember flipping through the pages slowly until I got to that chapter to look at the pictures in fascination. I was drawn to it and felt secretive about it. Braless and free, that's what I saw. I always had close friends who were girls and crushes on female teachers. I kept it to myself and wanted to fit in, but I didn't fit in. I felt different in so many ways from my peers. I was overweight, Jewish, poor, from a divorced family, and secretly gay. I was so different from the other kids at school, and kids were so mean. I was teased at school and didn't feel supported at home by my brothers. They never protected me or stood up for their little sister. I don't blame them given our upbringing, it's just my experience. I felt isolated and codependent on any friendships I had with other girls. Kids are cliquish and I wouldn't really be a part, I wasn't really a part of any clique. I was on the fringe in so many ways. Food was my comfort for all of these experiences when I felt different and alone. Adolescence was especially rough. Since I stuffed my sexuality and wanted the love of my father, I turned my attention to boys. I wanted acceptance so badly I would do anything to demean myself to receive, to receive some sort of attention. I put myself in harm's way many times and was lucky not to have been harmed or raped, since it could have happened. I was sexualized at too young an age. My mother brought home men she was dating like a revolving door. I equated sex with love. I spent too many years looking for men's attention until I finally met some gay people and had my first encounter with a woman. 
I was basically rejected due to her own fear of coming out, so I slammed that closet door shut for another four years and left the country for school. I ran away. I found it difficult to date and find acceptance in the gay community as someone, again, who was different, being a plus-size woman. It was, confus- it was a confusing time for me, figuring out who I was and looking for love. I still had low self-esteem about my size and my lack of accomplishment in life. I never finished college during this process. I did find my first long-term relationship in OA. Imagine that. At the time, I was, try- I was trying three meals a day and no dessert. I had made some progress and enjoyed all of the female and the female and mostly and mostly gay meeting I was attending about 20 years ago, but I never got a sponsor or worked the steps. I fell in love with someone outside of the program who was, as I learned many years later, another food addict who embodied the personality of my father on so many levels. I left OA and turned all of my attention to pleasing her a single child whose parents made her the focus of their lives in an unhealthy way, just like my father. My happiness was dependent on hers, and she was rarely happy. Over the eight years that we were together, I tried to please her and ate myself into oblivion. I would nod off on the couch in the evening after lots of carbs and sweets, sweets like a heroin addict getting their fix. She whined to me about crushes on other women, just like my father did to my mother. Where our relationship ended, when our relationship ended, I was $30,000 in debt, unemployed, moved back in with my mom, and the heaviest weight of my life. I'd finally reached my bottom. I cried every night, but there was a light. I never felt God's presence since food was my God, but higher power was there with me in the good times and the bad. I just didn't know it. I began to make changes in my life, slowly. Over the course of about five years, I lost 160 pounds. I got out of debt, I found employment, and now I'm employed at a nonprofit and returned to program. My views of time are fuzzy since I blocked so many harsh memories from my mind, but I think I had about a 20-year relapse. I made small changes over time. I connected with spirit, spiritual teachers, and worked on creating a connection with my higher power. I learned that losing the weight did not make me happy. I hadn't lost the food obsession. I was still living meal to meal. The hole in my heart was filled with food, and when that was gone, I had to find a new way of living. I cried and experienced pain like I never had before. But each time I felt my feelings, I felt a little better and a little stronger. I experienced the love and acceptance in program that I never felt anywhere else in my life. Um, work, friends, and community. You have embraced me and supported me as I am and as I change. You share my pain, grief, and setbacks and cheer me in my progress. With your support and higher powers, I can do what I could never do alone. I can seek joy and serenity in my life and pray for our shared well-being. With your support, I have found a program, Food food plan and abstinence. In the past, I would eat all day long and abandon myself to sugar. I am a compulsive overeater, but sugar is the gateway to my disease. None of my program would work without giving up sugar absolutely. My abstinence today is three meals a day and two optional snacks. No sugar, crackers, or chips. Any food that I cannot eat just one serving of becomes part of my abstinence. 
There are foods which I can occasionally eat if I have measured servings, nuts in particular. I consider that a yellow light food or a cautionary food which can get me into trouble if I'm careless, willful, or seeking it out for comfort. A red food, sugar, chips, and crackers, or eating outside my food plan would break my abstinence. Through the grace of God, in September, I will have four years of abstinence and continue to maintain my 160-pound weight loss. I choose to eat vegan, as they say, the road narrows. For me, it fits very well into my step 12. I can maintain my health and create as little harm in the world as possible. This, as with everything in my life, is a work in progress. I need the 12 steps to show me how to live a sane life full of serenity and abundance. The more tools I use, the more step work I do, the more time I sponsor, the more meetings I attend, the more I give back to my OA family and the community as a whole, the more the universe gives to me. As I clean up my side of the street and reach for God's greater purpose for my life, the better I feel. This disease is selfish and isolating. The more I connect with all of you and get outside myself, the better my life will be. I desire to lose self-seeking, as the big book says, and gain more interest in my fellows. I aspire to use the principles of the 12 steps in all aspects of my life and seek the help I need when I feel lost. I've been given a chance to make the second half of my life all that it can be, a second chance, actually, as higher power wills it to be. Thank you for your love and support. Hi, I'm Susie, compulsive overeater. And um, I'm going to start a timer because I'm also a little um, obsessive, compulsive, and uh, don't want to run over on time. Um, I uh, First, I want to thank Mary for asking me to be part of this. Um, it really uh, is an honor to... Um, to get to be of service this way and to get to um, share with you um, my experience, strength, and hope. And uh, that's what it is. It's my experience, strength, and hope. It's my um, largely my opinion. Um, there might be some recovery that sneaks in there, hopefully. Um, I, uh, I did pray earlier asking my higher power to um, help me say something that might be of, of, of use to others. So um, let's hope that HP was listening today. Um, so I did something that I haven't done a lot of OA speaking, um, but I did something that I know a lot of people have done. And I put together um, a book that has some photos that I'm going to pass around. But I want to tell you that um, this was uh, an incredible experience. Um, um, I, uh, I look at pictures of um, when I was you know in my 20s and looked great and amazing and like we do when we're you know young and vibrant and um and I just was uh the the active compulsive overeating the obsession well no yeah the act active act of compulsively overeating um I wasn't seeing that in my life and I wasn't seeing the um 
the side effects of that, you know, because I was 20, smoking, running around, drinking lots of coffee, had lots of other things to fix me. Um, so, um, but the obsession, the insanity in my head was so present. I look at these pictures when I was, you know, 20 something, and I um, just have to say, I thought I was fat and so out of shape. And just, I look at them today and I was like, oh, honey, honey, you. You know, I had the world I had the world at my fingertips and I didn't know it cuz I was so obsessed with myself and I was so fearful and um the, a lot of that fear and obsession has left today um because of the 12 steps. I'll pass that around. Um I do want to say that um uh I'll tell you a little bit about my past history. Um first of all, I grew up as a my dad's only child, my mom, I didn't grow up with my half-brothers and sisters, so for all intents and purposes, I'm an only child. Um, and uh, my parents loved the hell out of me. And, um, you know, it was a, I had a great family. I grew up in the Midwest and um, right in the heart of the Bible Belt. And uh, so when I came out when I was 13, um, there was this conflict because um, because everything around me said that it was a sin to be gay. And, um, and I was like, but I just am. Like, I have brown eyes, I have reddish hair, I just am. And, uh, and so I was like, well, no, God would make somebody be a sin. And I tell you that because when I got to 12-step programs, the concept of God um, was a hateful, mean thing that was used to beat the shit out of people um, and to, to harm people and to, um, it just was not, I couldn't get the concept of a loving higher power. Um, I'm grateful, I'm so grateful for, um, you know, the guy back in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, his stories in the book about how, like, the influence to put God as we understand him. And for me, it's not even him. It's like whatever, whatever I believe in a higher power. So that was, um, instrumental for me. Another thing I'm trying to, you know, I was trying to think like, how does my recovery in OA have, what does that have to do with my being a lesbian, being queer, being part of the LGBT community for so long, for most of my life, and um, in some ways it has nothing to do with it. In some ways it has everything to do with it. Um, there's um, so much of my life I grew up feeling different. You know, I, I played with the boys. I was a tomboy. Um, I played on the, um, when the ice hockey team league changed to an all boys league, they asked me to come and play with them. Um, and my parents were like, well, uh, isn't it a boys team? And they're like, well, we thought if she wouldn't tell, we wouldn't tell. <laughs> so I think I am the first story of don't ask, don't tell. Um, <laughs> And uh, I had amazing things like that happen. You know, like here I am in the, in the Midwest, and yet I'm playing on the all-boys team. The coach wants me to come play with them. And, um, you know, I, w I went to a co-ed 
uh, early at preschool and, and first grade or something like that. I went to a co-ed Christian school, and um, I don't know why, but uh, but I I got to play Jesus, or, or not Jesus, I played Joseph in the school play. It's like, how does, in 1970-something, like, how, who, what, that, I don't know how that happened. There were boys in my class, um, so I, while I was in this area of, um, you know, you have to fit in the box. Um, there was also like some buffer for me. And, um, but I grew up largely feeling very different, um, feeling loved, but feeling very different. And that is something that goes throughout my story. Um, when I, um, you know, um, my parents are both alcoholics and, um, uh, my my dad doesn't drink anymore. My mom is in recovery, and um, for me, it was most of my family. Are, they're mostly alcoholics, um, and so for me, it was never a matter of whether or not I would drink. It was a matter of when, and um, that was my first escape. That was my first real escape, and um, I don't know if it matters. I personally think that that's my core disease, but really. The real core of my disease is I don't want to be present. I don't, I don't want to feel what I feel, and I don't want to be here. And if you have something, if there is something out there that will take me away from me, I will use it. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, food, sex, cigarettes, um, ad infinitum. Um, and uh, I don't want to do the hard work. I don't want to do what is asked of me in um, in the twelve steps. And I don't want to do the the self searching and the the sacrifice of being of service and all of that um, unless I have really really good reason. And um, all that hard work I have found to be the easier, softer way um, because it was not working for me. So. Um, so I got clean and sober when I was 20, and um, and I was different. People weren't getting sober at that age then, um, in 1990, and um, and I would, you know, everybody was like the closest people in age to me was like 15, 20 years older than me, and I was different, and I didn't fit in, and I didn't belong. But people told me, look for the similarities. You know, I couldn't match my war stories out there, um, but I could match my recovery. I could look at the similarities in recovery. Um, so fast forward about 17, 18 years, um, still clean and sober, and um, I'm in this great relationship with a woman I love dearly, and we had been together um, probably three, four years at this point, and, um, and we were binge buddies, and we both were, like, doing really well in, in uh, our careers, and we bought a house, and, like, everything out there looked good, and we'd go to these really nice restaurants, which to me is a sign of a success. When I can put $100 or more down on dinner, life is good, um, and if they happen to bring me free dessert, I will, like, eat it no matter what because I'm not passing that up. That would be rude. Um, and I'm not rude. Uh, you know, and it doesn't matter that there is physical pain that will lay me out for hours, if not days. Um, and this had become a habit. Um, I don't hear 
for me personally, as a compulsive overreader, I don't tend to hear my story too often in OA, but it doesn't matter. I hear my recovery here. Um, my, you know, I don't have the story of I hid food, I snuck food, I stole food. Um, but the flip side of that is I either lived alone or I was, for example, with a partner who was my binge buddy, so there was no need to hide, lie, steal, cheat, you know, to get my fix. Um, and, um, but, my, but my disease will say, oh, that didn't happen to me, so I'm not really one of you. Um, different circumstances, I would lie, cheat, and steal for food. Bottom line. Um, and I know that today. Um, Sarah actually started, and I, I asked if I could share some of her story <laughs> as I uh, did this. Sarah um, started going to OA, and I was very supportive of that. And, you know, being in another program myself, I was like, if you need stuff out of the house or whatever, I'm very, whatever, whatever you need. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I can get that stuff outside on my own. And um, I don't need to eat it at home. I can eat it in my car. Um, uh, and she started going to meetings. That was great. And she happened to ask when there was someone coming down from L.A. to do a speaker's meeting and asked if I wanted to go. And she had gone to um, she's gone to a few AA meetings with me. And so it was not an, a weird question. And I was like, sure, I'll go. Um, I have been to enough 12-step meetings to know that when you are sitting in the audience and you start nodding your head when the speaker is sharing that you are screwed. <laughs> and that whole night, I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, yep, that's my relationship with food. And at this point, I had gotten pretty close to my top weight. This was in December, and um, uh, the woman happened to be coming down in January for a... Um, a workshop, a body image workshop. Well, I wanted to go to the body image workshop, but I did not want to join OA. This, let me tell you, this, this is the last place I wanted to come. Like, if I could have gotten food abstinent, clean, sober in AA, I would have. This, this is not the cool house on the block. Like, they don't make cool movies about, you know, overeating. They, they make cool movies about, you know, drug addicts dying on the floor from an overdose. And those were the people I wanted to be. I didn't want to just be fat, though. Like, that's not cool enough for me. Um, in case you haven't figured out, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. So I go to this... Um, this workshop on body image and um, Sarah's been abstinent for a while now and a number of months and we go we have lunch during the day we go to the rest of the workshop and then go um, get dinner afterwards or whatever and we're going to bed and I Sarah's abstinence at the time was, or yeah, it was three meals a day, two optional snacks. And I had no idea about abstinence other than what hers was. And, um, and I said, I think, I think I could count today as a day of abstinence. It was the first day, and I don't know how long, that I had actually three meals, 
that were that had a start and an end and not free range in between um, and I remember waking up um, that night that morning or you know going to bed waking up in the early hours of the morning and I was just like please 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 God please keep me abstinent today um, so uh, and I was abstinent that day and um, so my abstinence date is uh, January 27th uh, 2008 um, I came into OA. I really don't know my top weight because once you once I hit a certain point, why would I continue getting on a scale? Um, the top weight that I know of was uh, two fifty four, and I am five foot nothing. Um, so that's not proportional. Um, I was wearing a, you know, a, look at me, I'm Butch. Um, so I wear men's. <laughs> I wear men's clothes, and it was so cool. They had started putting the elastic, the, like, hidden elastic band in the the men's dress pants. And and so I was wearing, like, a size 52 or 54. I had a 54-inch waist. Um, my, um, and you'll see in some of those pictures, I could not close a, a neck that had, uh, that was 18 and a half inches. Um, you know, so I just, uh, and I had no idea. And something that was weird about going through this, um, this just tells me I don't have a connection with my body still, is going through some of those pictures, I do not know what I look like today compared to then. Like the early 20s, I get that I don't look like I was when I was 21 working in the shipyards and, um, you know, doing tons of physical work. But I don't know if I look like I looked when I was 25, 35. You know, I have no idea. And um, and weight, weight is actually something that fucks with my head. Um, so I don't get on the scale very often. Um, I sometimes do just to kind of get a reality check, but what works better for me is um, how are my clothes fitting? They will tell me the truth before scale does. And I'll, a, a quick example of that. Recently, um, actually last November, I started um, this uh, physical activity routine and got really involved in it. And um, And I had set a goal to lose, uh, I think, 20 pounds in a six-month period. And um, was had been had been doing a lot of walking and was had lost about 15 pounds and then I added a weight routine lifting weights and then within about three weeks I or something like that I had regained that 15 pounds my pant size you know my clothes were smaller but the weight had come from muscle and that's where I get fucked on on weight and so what works better for me is where am I at with my clothes um, you know, I do know that um, I would like to be at a smaller size, and I have conversations with my higher power on that. And what happens is I get to this place of, oh, damn it, I have to work those steps again. You know, I have, um, um, I have a total of, uh, in the other program, I have 25 years of experience with, with um, the steps. They have saved my life. They have saved my life in that program. They have saved my life in this program. Um, I my numbers, blood work, and all of that before I came into OA was, um, you know, 
through the roof. I I don't know how I didn't have diabetes yet, and um, that's a yet for me. Um, I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack, quite frankly, maybe because I was just lucky enough to have a good heart. Um, You know, that's a yet for me. Um, And um, so working the steps has been an integral part of my life and my recovery and um i have seven years of abstinence and um it frustrates me that i am not perfect here you know i want to be better faster more um that is part of my disease is that um where i am is i am not good enough yet um i am not as good as they are i am not as good as you are yet and this is the um this is the cunning, baffling, and patient part of my disease that will go, yeah, you're right. You're not. You know what? Maybe I don't need a donut today, but that, that thing over there looks really good. That might, that might make me feel better. That, you know, and it's like I, I do not believe that relapse starts with me um, – you know, just showing up and like, oh my God, I accidentally I ate something. My my abstinence um, is black and white. Uh, my abstinence is three meals a day, two optional snacks. Um, thank you. Um, that's what I have left. Really, ten minutes left? Sweet. I love talking about myself. Oh, wait, it's not about me. It's about service. <sighs> um, see, I totally got in my head about me, and I lost what I was. So it was three meals a day, two optional snacks. Um, my abstinence is black and white um, because I have to know. I have to know before I pick up, is this going to break my abstinence? I, for me, it can't be something vague. I know people have a wide range of what their definition is, and I think the important thing is that you have a definition that works for you. And um, I was, you know, grateful actually that I, um, when I first came to OA, one of the things one of the one of the things I knew from from my other program was get in the center of the herd. I had two weeks of abstinence, and I went to. Um, I went to a um, a retreat, and um, the leader happens to be on this panel, um, who talked about abstinence and having a bottom line breakable abstinence, and that was instrumental to me to be able to say, if I do this, I break my abstinence, and um, I have a bit of an ego, particularly around recovery, and um, you know sometimes that's. Not in my best interest, but I have learned to use it in my best interest. I have done the right thing for the wrong reason. I have not broken my abstinence um, because of my ego, because I do not want to say I'm a newcomer. Um, um, and I, and if that's what works, that'll. I mean, it'll work for a little while, but. Um, I know that I need to get my ass in meetings. I need to get connected with my sponsor. I need to get connected with um, with what I like to call God with skin on, which is all of you. You know, I couldn't get 
abstinent in that other program. I had to come here. I had to be with compulsive overeaters. I had to be with people who think like I do. Because let me tell you, at those meetings that I, at that other program, they serve cake to celebrate birthdays. Um, and so uh, that doesn't work for me, you know. Um, and And they don't get it. You guys get it. You guys get that I can't have one piece. You guys get that if I have one piece now, I might be able to pull that off while you're watching me, but I'm going to be at the store later. I may be at 7-Eleven at 3 in the morning getting uh, another fix. I may be like, who knows where, driving through drive throughs and um, getting, getting something to take me away from me. So... Um, I talk about not having wanting to be here, not wanting to have to come to OA. Um, that's just my that's just my story. But I couldn't have the life I have without OA. I was um, morbidly over, uh, overweight, morbidly obese. I um, my world had gotten so small. If friends invited me to do something, and um, and parking was an issue like I might have to walk a block I wasn't going that meant I wasn't going to pride that meant I wasn't engaging in activities that meant I wasn't seeing friends it meant that my world became my kitchen my living room my you know this small little hold up cell that I had within me and um, today you know you can look at some of those pictures it's like I hike a lot I go do things we um you know, one of the pictures in there is um, we were on our honeymoon this this um, past May, and um, we had gone to Maui, and we went to Maui in 07 and, um, and 08. So 07, all about food, um, and you can see that in the pictures. Um, <laughs> 08, mm, just a little bit of recovery, couple, I think 90 days, mm, still kind of about the food. Um, not as much. We did do some activities, but in 08, we couldn't. Um, I couldn't um, do a lot of things that I wanted to. There were I couldn't hike to the falls, the waterfalls, because it was three miles. I was like, dear God, who walks that far? That's insane. Why would you do that? Um, to me today, that's like that's my body can do that without thinking about it. Um, the uh, um, helicopter uh, taking a helicopter ride was um, they have a weight limit of 150 pounds and and um, I knew I wasn't getting on a helicopter uh, oh 250 two, I said 150 thank you 250 pounds um, I knew uh, either way <laughs> I knew I wasn't <laughs> either way I was not getting on a helicopter because they'd be like oh you need to pay for two people for your one self um <laughs> You know, and then uh, this year we went, um, we went, hang, we went power hang gliding. You know, I didn't even ask. I didn't even, I didn't need to know what the weight limit was. Um, you know, I fit. They had flight suits for us to put on. I fit in the clothes he had there to wear, and they fit over the clothes that I had on. Um, that never happened. Uh, you know, so. Um, the theme of this conference is I put my hand in yours and the rest of that line if, 
it's close to this if I'm not saying it exactly right is I put my hand in yours and together we do what we could not do alone um, I can't do recovery alone I cannot overcome the disease of compulsive eating on my own um, the last part of that prayer talks about having a life beyond our wildest dreams, that I could be engaged in life and participating from that, um, from that cell I had created um, as I consumed more and more food and was more and more involved in my addiction with food, um, to be at a place where um, I move about freely in the world and I have um, relationships and connections with people that I never dreamed possible, that I have a sense of, um, you know, I don't have a chiseled body, but I'm pretty comfortable in my body. Um, would I like it to be different? Yes, I'm working on that. And God is working with me. And I leave the results, I do the action, I leave the results up to my higher power. Um, it's, um, you know, kind of hard for me sometimes to be like, uh, um, you know, my weight and size is none of my business. Uh, but when I'm in a spiritually connected place, that's really the truth. Um, I just do the footwork. Um, I don't, thank you, I don't, I don't know what I would have done without Overeaters Anonymous. Um, you know, for at least 15 years, I tried not to come here. And I was actually successful in not coming here. Um, the first time I heard about OA, somebody had said that, um, you know, a lot of people do three meals a day um, as their abstinence. And I was like, well, that's just crazy talk. Who does that? That's, that is crazy. Um, because my relationship with food is so skewed that um, the idea that I could have parameters around food, around mealtimes, around the way that food, my relationship to food, that food could actually be a matter of substance, not a matter of um, filling the hole that I feel sometimes, numbing the pain or celebrating the joy, um, that I can just use food to move through my day and um, use it as, as fuel. Um, so, um, I put my hand in yours and together we can do what I could, we could never do alone. Um, the last part I want to say is, um, given that I had, a, um, a lot of experience in the other program, um, I had, a, I knew, I mean, I read the big book a lot. Um, I know a lot I know the language of recovery. I, um, you know, I am a smart person. The problem is for me, this is not an intellectual disease. So it doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what I know about addiction or, or, or um, compulsive overeating or anything else. It's what I do. It's the action I take. It's the daily reprieve that I get by... Um, being involved in the steps, having them really truly be a design for living in my life today that I just 
default to, um, to being of service, to working with others, to um, allowing myself to still be 12-stepped, you know, and to be grateful every day that um, I get to hear from you guys and be touched um, and 12-stepped. So um, thank you for 12-stepping me today. I'll take another 24. Thanks. Hi, I'm Terrell. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I'll qualify. Uh, my top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, and I have 36 years of abstinence. Um, I didn't bring a picture, so you just have to believe that I was overweight. Just like I didn't bring a picture, you have to believe that I'm gay. <laughs> Though there are probably pictures out there. Um, let's see. Uh, you know... First off, I just acknowledge the Supreme Court. I mean, it's amazing. And I'm single. <laughs> nice guy like me should be married, I know. Um, but anyway, um, you know, it's... I feel like the, kind of the old-timer, oh, you kids, oh, Why when I came in, <laughs> you know... There wasn't gay, you know. There was like it was just, and it's interesting because uh, um, a little bit of my story is that I uh, I come from this dysfunctional alcoholic family, so I discovered food at a very early age, and it did take me out. It got, it made the world go go away, which is what I wanted to do. Because in our literature, it says that we're overly sensitive people, or we're just sensitive. And uh, I think I came out overly sensitive, and everything hurt my hurt my feelings. I, you know, everything was just. And uh, of course, there was a the world was a dangerous place. It was there was not you know, um, it was not the safe place that a child should live in. And uh, so I discovered food, and food was the way that it just literally made the world go away, where I could breathe. So that I could just survive today. That's all I wanted was just to be able to survive today. And so um, what happened was that I got up to like 325 pounds, was picked on mercilessly in high school um, and junior high. My nickname was Terrell the Barrel. Um, You know, and it was just horrible. Um, And so my stepfather um, berated me. Um, about being a fat-ass kid and why not have any friends. I should get out of the house. I should do something. What's wrong with me? I should stop eating. I should go on a diet. And uh, one time I said, if I could, I would, but I can't. And somehow they were in AA, and they took they sent me to an OA meeting when I was 17 years old. Um, yeah, I weighed three, like 325 in high school. Um, all my pictures, of my, the pictures I do have are of me of... Uh, of high school pictures. Um, the, um, so I, I went to my first OA meeting and it was housewives. It was all housewives. Though there was a, like one or two men in the meeting and this man got up and said, he, uh, who led the meeting or spoke said he had lost a hundred pounds and was keeping it off, which gave me hope that I didn't have to live the rest of my life at a 300 pound kid, you know, because I mean, one of the, th- one of the, co- the thought crossed my mind that I had just 
uh, 325 pounds, 300 plus pounds. Uh, I don't know the exact weight because the scale said 300 on it. That was a dial. But I would get on the scale, it weigh, weigh 160. I'd get off, get on the scale, weigh 280. Get off the scale, get on, it'd be like 220. It, so apparently I was more than 300 because the scale didn't support my weight because it stopped the dial before it's before it reached the weight. So either the scale was not supporting 300 or I was over 300. I believe I was over 300. Um, and I felt like I had just wasted my life um, by... By my, I'd wasted four years of high school by being fat. I was going to go off to college. I was going to waste four years of college by being fat. I was going to waste the rest of my life being fat. And I, I was in that literally hopeless stage that we come to when we when we walk into Overs Anonymous. We're just hopeless. We just don't we don't believe that it will get better, you know. And we we'll try the last house in the block, but we we call it the last house in the block, you know, because. I mean, I guess I was blessed because I didn't try any other Weight Watch programs. I didn't, or, you know, I didn't try any other programs. I just, from age 17, I went to OA. Um, and I, and uh, th- so you, they gave me hope, and they gave me a gray sheet of paper, and I uh, was that food plan, and I worked that food plan quite well. Um, I lost like 125 pounds in five months um, because I was a 17-year-old boy. I was working on a shipping and loading dock, lifting mag rims. I went from binging to eating two eggs and an orange for breakfast. You know, it's, it happens, you know. I'm not a freak of nature. I'm not a freak of nature. I, my, calories in, calories burned. And we all friggin' hate that equation. That is an unfair, unjust equation. Calories in, calories burned equals weight. or Weight gain or weight loss. And... Uh, so I had was burning more calories than I was consuming, and I lost weight. Um, at the same time, when, uh, when I was going to these meetings, they talked about a uh, uh, God, and I had prayed to God to have my parents stop drinking because they were alcoholics, stop drinking and stop fighting, and they kept drinking and fighting. And I would pray to God, God, please, when I wake up, let me be thin. And I'd wake up the same weight I went to bed as. And I got the gig. I understood why, why I was being I was being punished. God hated me. And the reason why God hated me um, was because I was gay. And I knew from an early age. And when I was a kid, it was like, um, I just want to go ride the range with the cowboys. I just want to be cowboys, you know. It wasn't sexual. But as I went through puberty, it became more sexual. And then I heard about guys going through late puberty, and that's why they had the prepuberescent experiences, and of course I have arm, armpit hair, and I'm still prepuberescent, you know, trying to make excuses. But that's the reason why God hated me. And that's the reason why God made me fat. And that's the reason why God um, gave me alcoholic parents. So I couldn't turn my will in my life for this asshole that was t- punishing me. Um, then he talked about, a, they talked about a fourth step. Well, I, I couldn't tell another living person I was gay. Or that I was, you know, that I liked men. And it was, I mean, it wasn't like this background thought. It was bold, blatant, oh my God, in the high school locker room, oh my God, you know. And, and I know that one of the reasons I ate was to stuff down my sexuality. Because it doesn't make any difference whether I was, it, it doesn't make any difference whether you're straight or gay. If you're 300 plus pounds, I took myself out of the market. So what difference does it make, right? So it was, I knew that I ate over my sexuality. I knew that it was 
it was a clear-cut example of me stuffing down those gay feelings and getting rid of them. The problem is the gay was stronger, you know? Um, so I couldn't do the fourth step. And I could, so, but I basically, I went to a meeting a week for moral support, and I worked the food plant, and I uh, lost the weight. I went away to college, um, was getting lots of attention, which I didn't know how to deal with, um, because uh, in high school, senior in high school, 300 plus pounds, freshman in high college, 175. And I was bitter and resentment because I wasn't working a program. I, and I was full of myself, you know, and how I was angry at everyone who had, who had called me Terrell the Barrel. I was angry at life and the world. And so I had to go eat again. I had to go eat. I had to get rid of those feelings. And I did not work a 12-step program. I did not work OA. I went to a meeting because it felt good. You know, I abstained. Because it was, it felt good, right? But I wasn't willing to do the work. I wasn't willing to work the steps. I wasn't willing to do what it takes. I haven't asked this woman to be my sponsor. Um, at a meeting once, she uh, asked her during the break. She said yes. She came back to me after the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, she says, listen, to my sponsor told me I have too many sp- sponsees. Uh, I can't take on any more. And, of course, I knew what abandonment was about, so it was very clear for me and very comfortable for me to go, like, right, okay, I get it, the gig's up. Even OA doesn't want me. Or even OA, you know, they, like, that's just not for me. Um, so I went away to college, and, uh, and you know, it was, I discovered the wonderful world of fasting, and I got down to 160 pounds. And the way I discovered this wonderful world of fasting, two ways. One is you folks taught me this. You told me it's not the uh, hundredth bite that puts the weight on, it's the first. And I learned if I didn't take the first bite all day long, I was safe from food. I didn't have to worry about eating if I just didn't take that first bite. And it doesn't matter what the first bite is. If I can just say no to food all day long, I don't worry about food. And I am, I am that compulsive eater variety that once I start, I, there is no stopping. Also, what happened was I was... Dealing with my, I went to this, I took this sex roles class in sophomore year of college and talked about men's and women's roles. And I started meeting gay people and I started to become a member of the gay student union, even though I was a straight participant. Um, because I was being at the men, I was in the men's movement, movement and I was being supportive of my gay brothers in the struggle. Um, and then I came out. But, of course, I, the, the coming out process is very instrumental in my, my story. Because the reason why I started this fasting was because I developed this nervous stomach about being, coming out of the closet. And I'm the obsessive compulsive reader. And this is my – I went around to asking everyone that I knew in college, do you think I'm gay? What do you think? Do you think I'm gay? What do you think? Do you think I'm gay? Because I was trying to make it – I was trying to get everyone's opinion – about me being gay. Because if everyone said, yes, Terrell, I think you're gay and it's okay for you to be gay, then I could come out of the closet. Now, that is compulsive overthinking at the max. That is me being, or you might call it CODA, Al-Anon, whatever. It's the ism that says, if it's okay with you that I'm gay, then I'll be gay. So finally, this, this one gal told me, she said, Terrell, 
it doesn't make it, don't make a decision today. Just do whatever you do. If you sleep with a man today, sleep with a man. If you sleep with a woman, sleep with a woman. Don't make a de- don't worry about making a decision. And it gave me the freedom. And next thing you know, next year I was president of the Gay Student Union, um, <laughs> because that's what you know. All or nothing, right? It's black or white thinking. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to tiptoe. Anyway. So I came out in 1975, 76 in Sonoma State, just outside San Francisco. Oh, you kids. Things were different then. Um, And we didn't like God. God was, you know, God was the Nita Bryant. You know, it was, there was no God, please. Um, and so I got down to 160 pounds, and I maintained my weight that way um, by not eating all day long. And that was that nervous stomach. Really, I could not eat. And I was, I mean, before this, I was at this dorm, and I worked in the dorms, so I had free reign at the dorms. And I would make, you know, one of my jobs was to cut uh, sweet rolls in thirds to give to the, for breakfast. And I would go, you know, it was a, like a sweet roll, like a bear claw or whatever. You know, you cut three, you cut them in thirds. Where the student would take a third, and I'd take a whole. Well, I would go one, two, three, right? One, two, three. That was the way I would eat my sweet rolls. You know, I would cut two for you and one for me. Um, so I mean, I was binging, right? I mean, I was. Bi- I got back up to like two hundred sixty pounds, um, and thinking like I can stop. I can stop anytime now. I've lost three hundred. I was used to be three hundred. I've lost over one hundred twenty-five pounds. I can lose weight like that as I'm going up in weight. Anyway, so then I got this nervous stomach, and I couldn't eat, and I discovered the wonderful world of fasting. Like I said, if you don't take the first bite, I was safe. And so I got down to 160 pounds, and I maintained my weight by not doing anything except eating like nine or ten donuts on the way home from the discotheque. Um, it was the 70s. And, uh, and I dealt with it. That's what I, what I was doing with, with, that, with those donuts is I'm in my early 20s, 160 pounds, thin, looking good, getting attention but not getting attention. And, I mean, my best binges were after I tricked the night, you know. Uh, I mean, my best binge, I mean, I didn't eat breakfast. But if I tricked the night before, if you all know what that means, um, <laughs> if I tricked the night before, there was a binge waiting for me that morning because I had to deal with these emotions and feelings that I had just experienced from having a sexual encounter with someone. Not that it was, wasn't gay. It wasn't, oh, my God, I had a gay sex. No, it was, oh, my God, I had a sexual encounter experience, and now he saw my body, and I'm not good enough, and, oh my, and how do I deal with all this stuff? And I would go binge. And I, don't, I mean, binge wouldn't be like, okay, I'm going to binge all day. I might just like, stop and get pancakes for breakfast, right? I mean, it wasn't, but that was, that was beyond my eating behavior. Um, so I was maintaining my weight at 100. Oh, so I... I and I also dealt with it. The reason why I stopped and got donuts was because it, it, when I was standing in those crowded discotheques, and it was crowded back then, it was dark, and I'd be standing in the corner, and it was, it was at Studio One up in West Hollywood, and there was a, the DJ was sticking out over the dance floor, and I'd be back in the corner where it was dark, and I'd be afraid to move my finger. I'd be afraid to move my finger because I know that someone would walk up to me and say, Fat boy, what are you doing here? Look at you. You're too fat and you're too ugly. Go home. You don't belong here. Now, I got news for you. I was good looking. And I was thin, but I was too fat and too ugly in my head to be there. And I knew any second someone was going to find me out. And the only way I know how to deal with all that rejection I felt was to go eat donuts. And I would eat nine, or I'd go to these donut shops because the donut shops always had love in them. They were filled with love. 
And I don't know if you ever felt the love that comes out of a donut shop, but for me, I love. And there were, there were always older women in there, and they were in pink uniforms, and it felt like Grandma's house. And it was my Grandma's house never wore pink uniforms, never had, never done. But it felt like Grandma's house, like I'm going to Grandma's house, and I had the love, and I get my donuts. Um, and so, uh, what happened was that I uh, wound up. I was getting fitted for contact lenses, and the uh, my uh, eye doctor who worked operated my eyes and was like a full fledged eye doctor. And ba- oh, you kids! Back in those days, we had to go to the doctor. They take a prescription. We come back in two weeks because they had to go order out the contact lenses. You come back, they fit the contact lenses, and if they didn't, then you go back. At, you know, so it's a several week process, several weeks to get my contacts on. And uh, my my prescription is all over the board. My doctor could not zero down my prescription. Now, this is an eye doctor, not a, not a glass store place. An eye doctor could not zero down my prescription. And he said, and he asked me, if he said, is, is there a history of hypoglycemia or diabetes in your family? And I said, yes. He said, Terrell, are you eating sugar? And I kind of lied a little bit. I said, yes, a little. Um, he said, if we don't need to stop eating sugar, be blind within a year. And I then put on 30 pounds in six weeks because I went to Europe with some friends, some guys that I was attracted to. And one of my big deals is that I always went fit in because I was the fat kid in the corner that knew I was gay and was different. I mean, I knew I was different from day one that I was gay. I was fat. You know, I was uncoordinated because I was, I don't know, maybe because I'm gay, but because I was, I mean, I believe it's because I was, I was so out of touch with my body at 325 pounds. I couldn't screw a screw in because it was literally, it was like, it was called coordination. And I was so disconnected from my body from my binging that I couldn't do that. So I was just this, whatever, this, you know, and I've always wanted to fit in. And that's part of my character defect is I always want to be part of the A crowd. I want to be part of that A crowd. And believe me, OA is not the A crowd. But, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to come back to OA when I, after I came out. Um, and so the doctor told me if he didn't, didn't stop being sure he'd be blind within a year. And I went to Europe with all these friends that I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to Europe with friends. And I was so excited. And, I, you know, there was this guy I had been dating that's like this swim coach I was dating. I went with him in Berlin. And then there was another guy that I was attracted to that I wound up having sex with. And, like, oh, my God, these feelings and emotions. And then they went home, and I was off in Europe on my own for three, a couple of weeks. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I just didn't know. So all I knew how to do was to eat, and I binged the rest of the way through Europe. And I would stop. I got to the point where I, I ran out of money, and I just ride the trains, and I would get off the trains, and I would get buy chocolate at the train station, like a couple of chocolate bars, get back on the train, and I would binge on this chocolate, and then I'd pass out. And then I would come to another train station, don't know where I was going, and get off the train station, buy more chocolate, get back on the same train. And so putting on 30 pounds in six weeks. Um, what happened was um, I, uh, I, uh, came, I knew that I had to do something about my weight. And I came back to uh, Los Angeles. And I knew about OA. And I remember when I was, in, when I was binging my way through Europe, I was going like, I can still see. When things start to go gray, that's when I'll stop binging. And I knew about OA's and but I couldn't go back to OA. Do you understand? Because OA is full of housewives. They won't accept gay people. I'm in. I'm man. I'm a male. And this God shit. Like no, you know I'm gay. We don't believe in God. 
And so it was like, but you know what? 30 pounds in six weeks convinced me I need to go back to OA. So I went back to my first OA meeting in uh, Orange County. And because uh, I uh, it was, just happened to be the first minute, my, I called my sister and I said, I need to dry out your house. We didn't have eating disorder units. And I said, I need to dry out. I tried to kick kicking sugar and I get sick. So I need someplace to go kick sugar. And she said, I'll take you to a meeting. I've got company, um, but I'll take you to a meeting. So at my first meeting, there was a man speaking who was a moderate mealer. And I found out at that meeting that there was gay, uh, there was meetings at the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center six nights a week. That was where, that's the insanity of our disease, right? That says, I can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. So what happens, I went to these, I went to the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Centers. And I was, uh, you know, became a member. Of course, you know, it was kind of, I can say it was kind of hard because I was this cute young kid that walked in at a couple pounds overweight. And there were some old men there that were very lecherous. But I dealt, you know what, I knew what I was there for. I was there for a primary purpose. Um, And I was the kid. I was the kid that would cry. And I would cry about, you know, my gosh. And you know what, I, I wound up after, and I got abstinent, um, and I got a sponsor, and I asked my sponsor, I said, Does it, if, if I accept there's a God, do I have to go straight? I mean, that, that was my thinking, right? He said, no, it means you accept there's a power greater than yourself. Now, my sponsor, he, he, he died a woman, so, you know, it was bless his heart. I mean, he was, he was uh, or she, at the end, um, was, saved my life. Because I really thought that if I was going to go, if I was going to believe in God, I had to go straight. Um, I was raised Baptist, so that might have something to do with it. Um, the uh, what happened was the, uh, I, I, you know, this cool kid on the. Uh, literally after a couple of months of being in back in program, I was sick with you. I was done with you people. I I got the do- job done. I lost the weight. I was done. OA is not the place I want to be. And to this day, OA is not the place. I am never going to, I should say never, but to this point, I've never been like that. Oh, I love OA and I'm the grateful OA member. And oh my gosh, it's the best thing in the world. Oh my God. No, that's not me. I come here because I want to save my life. I be of service because I want to save my life. It has nothing to do with this altruistic, cheerful way. And if, if you relate to that, Bless your heart. If you don't, you go like, oh, my God, I love OA, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me, and oh, my God, it's the best. I love love OA. That's great. This is my story. Uh, Driving down here yesterday, I'm thinking, like, I'd rather be in West Hollywood celebrating than being driving down here for this meeting. You know, and then my sponsor spoke last night, so I'm thinking, like, I'd rather be up in Hillcrest with the boys. I'd rather be with the boys. But you know what? I'm a compulsive overeater. I need to be an OA. Now, that's my curse. That's my lot in life. I have to be an OA. If I don't, I get to go out and be 340, 50, 500 pounds. And I see it in our community where I see guys who are looking really good. And, you know, six months later, a year later, they ballooned up. And then I see it six months, six months, a year later, they back down. And then a year later, they ballooned up. And I'm thinking, bless their heart. They're one of us. And they're not going to OA. 
but they got this new diet or they got this new thing or maybe they fell in love or whatever. And you want to go like, you know what? I've pretty much been this weight for my entire adult life. I mean, yes, I've gained weight as I've gotten older, right? I mean, I've put on a few pounds. But it's like one of those things where like, okay, so maybe I'm up a pant size or two since I, since I was in my 30s or my 20s. Now, that's a friggin' miracle, but I get to watch these anyway. I digress. Um, so what, one thing that's interesting that I want to share about is that when I was in my first year of – oh, I went back to OA after binging on two pieces of toast. That's my last binge. Um, January 6, 1979 is my abstinence date. Um, and I always say it's amazing how AIDS will convince the gay community about, gay, about God. I mean, it was so amazing to watch. Like, I was this closeted God, God person, right? Because I, well, now you would say God because you like my pitch. So if I said God, you, felt, you all clapped. So I thought, okay, I'm going to use God in my pitches, which was acting as if, and next thing you know, I started believing in God. Um, but I couldn't talk about it to the, to the community, please. But then AIDS happened, and people started getting religious and spiritual. So I, get to, I got to come out. So in my first year, or my first year of abstinence, um, uh, like in the 1980, I wound up moving to Long Beach for a job. Getting away from the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center, I couldn't make it up there every day for my meetings. Or, and uh, I was starting to go to meetings in Orange County and send in Long Beach area, and I, I once again, I felt different from And uh, I, my, my abstinence started suffering. My food started suffering. And I was done with you folks again. One more time, I was done because it, you were not getting it done. You were not doing what I needed to get done. So I went to this one meeting. It's like pretty much going to be my last OA meeting. And uh, I saw this woman, and I, and I recognized her, and she smiled at me. And I told her what was going on, that I was scared to pitch because I was afraid that if I talked about being gay, that people would walk out of the room, that, you would, that it would be, I would be ostracized. And she said, Terrell, those people that walk out of the room saying faggot, you don't want to talk to them anyway. The people that come up to you and talk to you and say hi to you after you talk about being gay, those are the ones you want to talk to. Those, that's the program you want. She saved my life. Because she gave me the permission to talk about being gay. Now, I got news for you. After that, I moved to Houston, Texas in the early 80s. And I wound up going to Pasadena, Texas to share and here's this gay guy going to pa- well, but I don't know if you know Pasadena, Texas. At that point in time, was the home of the Nazi Party and the Ku Klux Klan. And there's this gay boy going out there, talking about OA, talking about God. And, and uh, I shared, and I said, you know, this, you know, if you want to make this high, this chair your higher power, you can. And this woman stood up and said, "That's blasphemy," and stormed out of the room. And I was kind of, kind of taken back, but OA. I went. I mean, that's the party line. If you want to make this your chair, your higher power, go for it. Make that your higher power. So the secretary got up after I spoke and apologized to the meeting for inviting me to speak because he was said, you know, you separate the fish from the bone and you take the meat from the bone. And, you know, just apo- he said he had heard I had a lot of weight loss. Well, I couldn't find out it was the wife. He was, the woman who got him was wife. And I, apparently I was not re- well received in Pasadena, Texas. But I knew better that I took a couple of friends, program friends, and I wound up in the bathroom on my knees saying, oh, God, I mean, like, because, you know, OA is safe for us. OA is anonymous. It's where we can come, right? I don't care what your sexuality. I don't care who you are. When we walk in that door of OA, we're an OA member. We're just OA. We're not gay, straight. We're just 
an, another OA member trying to get better. And for that one time, um, is that no? Okay. Um, for for that one time, I had been. It felt like I was. I felt violated. Okay. Um, and so the thing that happened was that, um, you know, my friends took me and, and took care of me. So OA cannot can be unsafe, but the bottom line is that we are. We came here to claim our seat. We came here to be in, to say, I've got this disease that's going to kill me. I got this disease that's going to kill me. It's going to take me out. For me, it was going to make me blind. I was going to go blind. You know. But this, but I have to claim my seat and say, I don't care whether you like the fact I'm gay or not. I'm taking my seat here. Now, nowadays we don't have a gay and lesbian gay meeting up in Los Angeles. We we they seem to dissipate for lack of attendance. I mean, the amazing thing for us in Los Angeles is that we. I can go to any meeting. It doesn't make any difference, you know, gay or straight. You know, it just like I go to my home group. There's gays in there. I didn't know they're gay. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, you're gay." I didn't realize, you know. You know, and it's for me. It was such an integral part of my story, and I, I used to. I my I told my sponsor. Used to, my sponsor in the '90s said, I'm, "I to give all these people your. You have a great program and tell them you're a great speaker. I give all these people your name, but they never ask you." And I said, "Oh, Natalie, they don't ask gays to lead retreats, and they don't ask gays to to do conventions." You know, and that was my thought. Like, because I was gay, I was going to still be separated from and over as anonymous. I don't know if the country's changed or whether that was just my stinking thinking. And because Lord knows now, I get invited all over the country to lead retreats and do conventions, and you know, I'm going to be your closing speaker tomorrow. This is double duty. They they asked me driving down yesterday, going like, "Well, can you do a gay panel too?" It's like. Okay, and honor the Supreme Court, I'll say yes, because, you know, but it's, you know, but that's where my thinking makes me want to make me different. My thinking makes me want to say, well, see, you don't understand me. My thinking says, well, you're just not cool enough. And thank God, Overs Anonymous has always said, Terrell, don't make any difference who you are. All you got to do is have a willingness to stop eating compulsively. That's all we ask of you. Be willing to stop eating compulsively. And I've taken that to heart. And it's interesting. Then I found out that, you know, that story in the big book where they talked about where they didn't know if they should let that person in. I don't know if you know about it. They had the sicker perversion than, than, uh, um, than the alcoholism. He was gay, you know. So they grappled with that at a very early in AA, and they let him in. So we're welcome here. Gay, straight, doesn't make any difference. We're welcome here. And that's the amazing part. Now we get to go share our story. And my sponsor for umpteen years was a kindergarten teacher who was like 50 years old, I mean like 30 years older than me. And I was telling her the most intimate details of my sex life. I know, it seems strange. I've got a new sponsor who's, you know, 84. I get to talk to her about male sex, men on man sex. Haven't yet. She's a new sponsor. But if it comes up, she's going to hear it. Right? 
And she's going to sit there and listen to it because that's what we do, right? Just got Because I got to listen to my sponsees talk about their wives. And I'm going to go like, oh, if I hear about another man-wife problem, I just want to scream. You know, like, oh, please, tell me why your wife's not doing it right. right? And, you know, it's like, oh, I don't know if you sponsor straight people, but they're most problematic in the world. Oh, seriously. Like, you want to go like, dude, you know, she's a woman. She's different. Like, she's not going to be like you. Oh, anyway, I digress. Um, I just want to say that, that to close that it's like, you know, as much as I don't want to be an OA member, as much as I don't want to be here, the payoff is worth it. If it wasn't worth the payoff, believe me, I would have been gone a long time ago. But thank God, there's a payoff. And the payoff is I get to be sane, serene, calm, peaceful. And, even, and I now get to go play with the boys because I come to OA. Not in spite of OA. But because I come to OA, become comfortable in my own skin. Did that circuit party routine in the 90s that was very popular then. You know, take my shirt off dancing, middle of thousands of men, because of OA. Not because I was in a great diet. I had to work my program on that dance floor. But because of that, I've got, to, I've got what I've wanted because of OA. And that I'm aware of. Thanks for letting me share. much for your shares and to wrap up do we have the ask a basket sorry I'll put there do have a few minutes for that whoever would like to answer answer please the question is how do you keep your program fresh do you have for getting through those times when the disease tries to lure you into breaking your abstinence or playing with portion control? I think I would say my biggest thing on that is I, uh, I have to be connected to other people. That um, The d- disease in my head and me alone um, are a very dangerous combination and you know, just speaking what I'm thinking about food to somebody else starts to take the power out of it. And then I may need to, you know, do a quick run through the steps or, you know, there, something will come out of that conversation where I will know what the next um, next step of action is. Okay. Any other questions? 
Any other comments? No? Okay. I actually wanted to spend uh, just a couple of minutes to, we have an LGBT meeting, an LGBT and friends meeting in San Diego. And it was um, a challenge starting the meeting. It was about five years ago, seven years, I don't even know how long ago. It was a long time ago. And uh, it now is a very active meeting and there are, every Sunday there must be at least 20 people and it was nice to be able to add the and friends to the title of the, the meeting. And I just wanted to, in case someone wants to start a group someplace, because when we started it, the message was that's not something you could do. And so I just want to read out of Tradition 3 in our 12 and 12 book, page 133. There are also special emphasis groups in OA, such as those especially for newcomers, for men, for women, for gays and lesbians, for maintainers, or for bulimics. In cases where they are registered at OA groups, they should not exclude any compulsive eater who wants to attend and share, even though the member might not fit the category through, towards which the meeting is geared. So if you, did, if you had any questions, just please get in touch with myself or Liz or with um, Susie. <laughs> um, and we're, ha we're happy to help. Okay, and it's time to wrap up. So why don't we start with, it's the OA Promise, which is the theme of our, our convention this week, or t this weekend. Hmm? No, there's no... Oh, there is, actually. I'm sorry. I take the... Yeah, thank you. Yes. We, we now will have three-minute shares. If you'd like to share, please keep on topic and stop sharing at the end of the three minutes. And you must sign the tape release, which I think people do as they come in and register, the tape release form before sharing. Would anyone like to share? 